welcome, welcome to another episode of Filmmakers on the Cutting Edge from CreativeSpark.ai, where we have conversations with filmmakers who use or create cutting-edge technologies, tools, and workflows to be more creative and productive. I'm your host, Marcelo Lewin. As always, you can get a hold of me, Marcelo, at CreativeSpark.ai. Now, also remember to check out CreativeSpark.ai for more podcast episodes and tutorials. Finally, if you're watching this on YouTube, please remember to subscribe to the channel, click that bell icon so you can get notified when a new episode is out. And if you enjoyed this episode, click the like button. And if you didn't, send me an email and tell me why. But I know you're going to enjoy this episode. It's actually a really, really good one. Now, today's episode is all about how AI and Unreal Engine are disrupting filmmaking and animation. And it's both a statement and a question, which we're going to explore later. Uh, with my guest, Aaron Rabinowitz, which I know I messed up his first name. I tried really hard not to do it because I want to do it the right way, but that's okay. I'm going to call him Aaron. Rabinowitz, a, a media and entertainment tech consultant and the CEO of Motion Management Inn. And if you've been in filmmaking for a while, you actually know him. He's been around forever and does a lot of cool stuff. So without further ado, Aaron, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me, Marcelo. Uh, being around forever, that makes me sound old, uh, but I guess that's... Uh, no, no, that's in, in a good way, I mean. In, in a good way, yeah. In a total good way. And you're definitely much younger than me, so... I don't like that. At least you look it. No, no, my secret, by the way, is that like I was as an animator and a visual effects artist, I spent like years inside of a dark room with no sunlight hitting my skin. So like and that, it's it's a youth, youthful look, but... Uh, exactly. You know. Yeah, yeah. And when I shave, I'm like 20 years younger, but no, actually, no, I'm still old. <laughs> So, hey, welcome here. Um, uh, I followed you for a, a long time. I had another website called Filmmaking Webinars uh, a long time ago in 2008. And I think you were in, um, what was that uh, company called? Uh, the uh, Special Effects. Red Giant. Uh, Red Giant. You were in Red Giant and you, you did a bunch of stuff there. Uh, so tell us about your background real quick. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, 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 when I was three years old, I, uh, I saw Star Wars in the theater, and um, I didn't really understand what I was seeing exactly at that age. But, but what I know is that a few months later, there was uh, a special on television called uh, "The Making of Star Wars" or "The Visual Effects of Star Wars," the special effects of Star Wars, something like that. Yeah. And and it was like a forty-minute show where they just explained how special effects work, and and that actually I knew from that moment from seeing that that that's what I wanted to do with my with my life. And it's funny because the movie was in the theater for a year. Back then movies were in the theater for a year if they were very right. successful. So like you'd go, you'd watch, you know, they they would put something on TV like three months later and the movie was still in the theater and you'd go back and watch it again, you know, which I did. And you know, I knew that I wanted to, to do this for a career. And then, you know, when I when I got out of college and not having found any kind of way to do that, I got myself an internship working at Sesame Street. And I worked, you know, I worked uh, partially on set, partially in the offices. I learned a lot about production and, um, and I learned part of my job ended up becoming, I became like a creator, a, a, a technical director there. And I had to learn how to use, uh, the different software that the artists were using just to support them. And I ended up learning after effects and a little bit of 3d with 3d studio max at the time. And I really knew that like that, that was my in. I was like, once I got started on that, that's what I wanted to do. And when I ended up moving over to Nickelodeon as um as a producer i uh i had a, i didn't have a budget for for a certain set of blocks of like spots and little interstitials and things like that so i rented a computer from nickelodeon and i just worked at their space they let me uh they let me um work in the nickelodeon digital animation labs 
and a producer saw me animating and he was like, Hey, you should send us your reel. And, uh, and the thing was I had sent them my reel like twice in the last three months, but he took me to this room where there was like literally like a mountain of v- like VHF tapes. Like, right. Mm-hmm. He's like, just, yeah, sure. Just find me your, your reel right here. And I'm like, how about if I bring it in tomorrow? And then I, I did. And then they hired me to do that. So that's how I kind of started off moving into animation. Um, and that would became my full-time gig, uh, you know, jumping from place to place, you know, it was Nickelodeon, VH1, all the stuff around that, that group of, uh, of networks. And then I started to do some commercial stuff and then I started my own company because I just, you know, like I, I, I loved it and I wanted to move beyond just what we were doing there. And, um, for a while I did that, but it turns out that as an artist, maybe not at the best at business, at least at that time in my life, I, I was, uh, you know, I, I was quintessential starving artist. I wanted to do great work and worried about the money later. Right. Uh, my wife was really good at getting me out of that. Um, but then, <laughs> but then, but then after doing all of that and, and, uh, just using the software so deeply, um, I, I realized that, you know, that I really love software. And so when my daughter was born, I, I wanted to like, just sort of make a, a change. Like I didn't want to work a hundred hours a week, even though I love the animation work. I wanted to watch my kids grow up. So I, I started reaching out to software companies whose products I used every day and mm companies was Red Giant and I called him on the phone. I was like, hey, I'm interested in working with you. And the first thing the CEO said to me was straight up like, hey, we're not going to hire you. Um, but but I was able to put together a proposal with the help of my wife, who, by the way, is uh, she's like in HR and she's in leadership development. And she and, and just thinking about projects, she helped me at that time sort of like formulate what I wanted my job to be. And uh, I basically wrote my own job. And that's how I ended up at Red Giant. And I spent, you know, 12 years there before we were required by Maxon. Um, which is, you know, the company that makes uh, right. 4D. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And you were a product designer there. You were in- Well, I was I was actually a couple of things. I was the head of marketing. Um, okay. And then I had also come in with some IP that I'd created with a guy named Dan Eberts, who people who use After Effects may know him for, you know, he he's he wrote so much of the the uh, the scripting and all the stuff that people use to, to make After Effects better. That's like, you know, you go online to the forums and you ask for help and he's the guy who always used to answer mm. the questions. And so he and I created uh, a product called Hollow Matrix, which was like, a, it made footage look like hologra- holographic uh, imagery. And um, I brought that into Red Giant and that ended up being expanded uh, when they created Universe. We redid it under GPU acceleration. Dan and I recoded that. And uh, and he did most of the coding, honestly. I'm, I just like, I just messed around inside. Mostly it was design at that point. We did that. Um, we created a few other tools. And then within Universe, we just, you know, I led the team uh, on certain on certain particular products within universe of so certain plugins that were being created for editors to use to create different kinds of visual effects. But, uh, but officially I was there for marketing and I'm what you probably know me most from is the, you know, you talked about my time there was we also made films and I led the film team. Yeah. So we had this awesome, and that was by the way, the greatest scam I think I ever pulled off, uh, which was, I said, we should make films for marketing. Yeah. You know, and, uh, I love that they were into it. Uh, cause it really wasn't the films that were supposed to be the, the thing that like that were that sold the products it was the behind the scenes but you needed a film to have right scenes yeah we worked with the team and we used to create these great films that i really enjoyed making and uh, it was just so much fun and and uh you know like red giant got a a pretty nice boost in their in their viewership and and known you know how known they were because of those films having completely nothing to do with products almost except for the fact that we used them well, it's a scam, but the reality wasn't, right? Because you need to eat your own dog food, right? I mean, you guys had to do the the, the movie and show the world how uh, in a real movie you are using these products. Yeah. And to me, that's the best way of selling because you're not selling. Yeah. And that was it. And by the way, that's that's like exactly like you say, like I've always believed in marketing as as a thing that is not, 
if you're selling and you're doing it and you and you don't feel it, it's it's hard to do. It's hard exactly. to you know, you have to believe in the product. And for us, we would use the products and actually, and I think that more importantly, we would run into problems during filming and we'd say, Man, wouldn't it be great if we had a tool that did this? And then we would build that tool. So that's kind of a lot of how a lot of Red Giant tools were created was from the need. And even starting with back in the day with Magic Bullet, where Stu Mashowitz, who, you know, was from Industrial Light and Magic and uh, he had his own company called The Orphanage, um, like tools that, that he created through the process of making films came to be software that we all use today. Yeah, yeah. Crazy, uh, crazy stuff. You have an incredible background. The cool thing is that you're both technical and creative, which is, you know, the best of both worlds, right? Yeah, but I mean, it's like, I guess I think it's fair to say, like, you know, it's like jack of all trades, master of none kind of thing. Like I, uh, I, you know, I've had, a, I've been lucky in my career in, in being able to touch all of these things, but I tend to work with people who are a lot smarter than me and know more about each. It's just having this touch point between the two helps a lot. Well, filmmaking is all about collaboration anyway, so that's the best way to do it. So, okay, cool. Let's uh, let's jump in and talk. Where today we're talking about Unreal Engine and AI, and how uh, they are disrupting, disrupting the industry. So, we're going to talk about how they are doing that, and also, is the word disrupting a little bit too much of a hype? Or, I mean, they definitely are having an effect. We can agree on that, right? Sure. The level of effect that that could be debated. So let's start. Let's start with um, Unreal Engine and um, just give us real quick how it came to be and how it migrated from this game engine to now being accepted yeah. in the film industry. So Unreal Engine um, is is you know created by Epic Games uh, and it is um, it's their engine for running their video games on. So if you play Fortnite, uh, you know like my son does all the time, it's what makes the stuff run in real time essentially. So you can play these games and it's really great at creating like large worlds that you can play in. And uh, it was really just a game engine for a long time, but but it, it does have some animation tools that are part of the process of making games that are in there, but it really wasn't being touched by the animation industry at all. What happened was uh, when they were working on Rogue One, they, they came across some problems that made them think that there might be a solution where they could use, instead of using green screen shooting, they would do stuff over, uh, you know, over what they call now the, vol- the volume, which is a, a, like a 360 or really 180 degree uh, setup of monitors that you know, high, right. you know, high resolution LEDs. And using uh, Unreal to generate the backgrounds in these large worlds, they would then use it. And this came about, really came to be used in The Mandalorian. Right. And there's a lot of reasons you do it. One is, I mean, look, at the most practical level, right, it's very hard to shoot green screen when you're when your main character literally reflects everything around him. Right. So right. If you're wearing a silver armor, but that's not the main reason. The main reason is because just it actually saves a ton of money for, you know, if you happen to have if you have a volume and you build it, then it saves a ton of money because you don't have to build a lot of your sets. Right. You have this stuff that's just that's just, you know, generated, uh, you know, through CGI in the background that's live during the shot. And, you know, I want to say this. And none of the, in camera. Right. So we'll, let's kind of talk about this because the thing is that that we've been throwing projections on the screen behind actors forever, sure. right? And this is back in the like early the old movies film. where they're driving like this. Yeah, you know. and the thing is, exactly. But, but, and so you get like, that's definitely a big help. But what, what what's the failure of that? Or rather, what's the, the limitation of that is that when the camera turns or rotates, there's no parallax, right? So objects that are closer don't, move at a different speed than objects that are further away it becomes very obvious that it's flat and so they 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 created the solution that used unreal engine to generate what's in the distance the background and when the camera moves on set the parallax happens so it looks really weird on set but to you the viewer who's looking through the camera lens it looks perfect 
and it can do this in real time. And so this is like what they're doing. They're using Unreal Engine to like, again, you can't build that much within Unreal. You're using like different 3D programs to build your environments and whatnot. But Unreal Engine can run this stuff in real time. It has atmospherics and all these right. things that make it very viable for shooting. And if you want to shoot at sunset, you know, you don't have those five minutes to shoot at sunset. You have 15 hours to shoot at sunset right. if that's what you need, right? And you can reset sunset. Yeah, exactly. Like, like you can make it last as long as you want. And so that's where the, the cost effectiveness comes in on that. I mean, for what it's worth, nobody's getting rid of green screen. I mean, that one behind me, but it's, it's green screens are, are still a really critical part of the visual effects process as is rotoscoping with hand, you know, where you slowly frame by frame cutting someone out. Like these are still considered very viable and, and, you know, normal solutions within Hollywood. It's just the volume solves a certain kind of problem that, uh, that, you know, like if, if everyone had one, it'd be awesome. But you know, it's it's limited to a few companies that have this space. Well, it's funny you say that because I think the other positive, and I love your take on this, if, you, if you're an actor and you turn around and you're surrounded by green screen, that's all you see. So yeah. creatively, it's hard to get into that part when you're just looking at green screen and that's supposed to be this character you're arguing against or fighting yeah. or you're in this world with, with VP, virtual production, using a real engine they get to be there and they get to see it and the the reflections of that yeah. world is on their forehead and the color changes and yeah one one of the big challenges in, in compositing is like really making it look like somebody was there when they were there you can do some things with lighting even eyesight right the, yeah. the sight yeah i mean the, like it's just having these lights come over you or or having something to look at that makes you feel like i'm sure that helps the actors improve their performance as well Right, exactly. Right, because the, the director doesn't have to say, "Oh, lower your eyesight a bit," because it's a little bit lower, a little bit. Lower. I mean, they they're looking at what they're supposed to be looking at, right? And that's why sometimes, if you watch The Mandalorian, and there's many other productions that are using like virtual production in a real engine, you would never know that it's it's fake. Yeah, I mean, I think I was really surprised. Now, even though I knew that they were using the volume, I was surprised to know that something like ninety-five percent of the shots in the Mandalorian are done inside. At least I read that. You know, it's always hard to know with all the VFX. There's such a a push in Hollywood to deny any like CGI like that it exists that you try putting <laughs> as much practical as possible, and this kind of comes closer right. to the practical than it does to the CGI part because, like, hey, we're in a room, the background looks real, and they're being lit real, you know, realistically right. by it. Yeah, so. Well, and the best mix is when they're doing the 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 volume with Unreal Engine mixed up with practical, right? So that they have an yeah. actual set. For sure. And, and then do. it all becomes one. Yeah, but it's really funny. I think a lot of it just kind of rolls out of the room and the other part rolls in and they just swap out the whole distance background. Exactly. It's pretty, pretty amazing stuff. So that was, that was how it kind of got introduced to Hollywood and became like a thing that people really considered as a tool. And more recently, as, as they've improved the reflections and the motion blur and all the different things that come into uh, an engine for graphics, it's become more viable for use in, you know, animation and motion graphics. And in fact, I think Love, Death and Robots, Love, Death, Robots used, uh, they had one episode that was done with in that. In Unreal, really? Yeah. It looked, it looked really good. I, and I'm, I'm pretty confident that- I'm going to have to look that up now because I watched the whole, well, I think it was season one that I watched and I yeah, loved it. Was it. Like the, there was like this uh, woman who's dead, like she's, it's like, she's like all these treasures and he's gold and she's wearing all this gold and like, there's like an, it's like an alien environment and the, this guy comes to the water and it looked, I mean, it just looked really good. But I would say this, that given that I've, I've been using Unreal and I can tell you it has limitations. I think that anybody who's making films, just like making real films, like you yeah. work around those limitations. You don't try to do anything that you know you can't do in that. And so Unreal has a lot more limitations in terms of the realism that it can produce compared to something like Redshift, which you might render out of Cinema 4D and takes a lot longer. But 
Unreal, the speed of it is just insane. You know. And so beyond the realism, what other challenges are there with Unreal? Well, I mean, the re the realism aspect is the big, and also the tools for animation are not like ideal in there. It wasn't designed for that. It was designed for it was designed for video games. And and a great sort of way to think about this is, you know, I, I was frustrated initially when using it because every time I wanted to bring in a file, instead of just bringing the file in and referencing it the way that you do in your video editor or you do in any other 3D program like a texture, it has to duplicate it and compile it for use in your project. So your files get huge because mm. of this. But the reason it has to do it is because this system was designed for video games and you don't know if someone's going to have a font on their computer or a texture or anything. We know they're not. So it all has to be you know, added in, it, in the package. file. So yeah, so anything you bring in gets duplicated and and you know like has to be saved separately in its own thing. So your original file is in touch, which is fine, but right. it's but it's it's duplicated, and that's another big you know big pain in the butt about it. But I but still I got to say this: uh, I had a project that I was working on, and um, somebody asked me to to turn around one single image. He was like, "Hey, can you just change this image? It's a hard to read in this in the still shot." And I was able to just go in in like three seconds, rotate the camera, just hit render, and like literally like a second later. I was able to send it off to him, whereas, you know, that would take a good, a good, you know, few minutes to 20 minutes in, you know, doing with Redshift and, and Cinema 4D. But, but the workflow is not as, as simple and straightforward for somebody who comes from, you know, traditional 3D background like me. So what do you think that'll do that these real time rendering capabilities, what is it going to do to filmmakers and the ex expectations with other tools? Because I, to me, I see that as the disruption, right? is the people are getting used to this kind of like the email oh you send it and it's like it's a second there already now we expect that every time and if it's two seconds oh my god it's so it takes us so long yeah. right i think it's less the the artists and it's more the companies that hire them the studios, that have their, yeah. right the studios or the, the executives that expect like hey why can't you do this with ai hey can't why can't you do this unreal they don't understand the limitations of these things that they're decide that they're designed for very specific purposes and that's mm -hmm. kind of what gets us to like i think we'll talk more about it when we talk about the hype of ai right now but these are the things where where the ones who use this stuff know that these are not necessarily a threat to the work they're doing what it is the threat to is like the relationship they're going to have with these companies who are being very unrealistic about what they want. And as it is in visual effects and, and filmmaking, it's always get more for less money. So this is going to make it even more challenging, I think. So so let's talk about, because we're all, we're going to switch to AI in just a second, but let's talk about that hype with Unreal, because it is a hype also. It's everywhere. People are talking about real-time rendering capabilities. Yeah. And I do agree with you that I think the people that work with any technology know the limitations and possibilities and the ones that just read about it. They're right. like, oh, can't you just do this? It says here you could do it, right? Yeah. So are we talking about hype with Unreal as well or? It, I think it depends. Like for, for visual effects, for high-end visual effects, I don't think Unreal is outside of the way that they use it in the volume, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think Unreal is quite ready yet. I do think that with motion graphics, we're at a cusp. Um, I, I believe that... Uh, that Unreal, that Epic announced like this project called Project Avalanche, which is going to be uh, creating a motion graphics tool for for that, that based on the Unreal Engine. So it'll run in real time or near real time, which is not going to disrupt like the high end visual effects, and it's not going to disrupt even high end motion graphics. But mm -hmm. for sports graphics and for broadcast graphics, where that stuff has to be turned around super quickly, and where the aesthetic for those things hasn't changed in the decade and a half, you know, for fifteen years, everything's it's neon lights and metals and reflections and some glass, like that hasn't changed. These are going to be really useful because you know you often don't have much time to turn this stuff around, and as it is, we're always we're always struggling to get it done, 
you know, within the time frame. So a tool like that, when it's not available yet, it's something that they just, they've talked about, they've shown a little bit of a demo of, but when that happens, that will disrupt the market a little bit because, you know, 3D artists rarely change, they rarely change their program that they're working in. There's so much investment that you put a time and energy into it. But when, when there is something that like something that disrupts in a, in a major way, in this case, it's going to be speed, even though it's not quality and quality will suffer in, in a certain way. Um, speed is going to be the, the the winner here. And that I think will get a lot of artists to try out that software. And of course, they're going to learn about the limitations of it too, and realize that for some projects they are going to use a high end, you know, a higher end product like Cinema 4D or Maya. And in some cases they're going to use, you know, a real time engine like Unreal. Right. So would you agree that virtual production is disrupting filmmaking or? You know, I think it's enhancing it. I think that again, you know, they're still shooting on, on set. They're still shooting, they're still shooting on location. Um, but it is, if you have the, the, if you have the ability to work in a volume and the budget for it, it has its own way of saving money. You know, it's funny because in some ways shooting on, on, uh, shooting out in the desert somewhere can be very expensive. Sure. When you have like 15 trucks and all of your different, you know, your actors and their trucks and the food services and all that. But when it's just like you and your friend going out there to shoot a small right. film, right. That's not a disruption at all. So I think that it's to say disruption is a, is a weird thing. I, I always think of it like this is that some people's work will be kind of relegated a little bit to the side and new people will have work yeah. uh, in, in all of this stuff. As with every technology. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so talking about disruption, uh, let's let's switch to artificial intelligence uh, as a general term, right? But the big disruption, at least as of ChatGPT, November of last year, we're talking about generative AI, right? But we'll use AI as a general term. Um, let's talk a little bit about AI and how it's enhancing the entire filmmaking process. Well, you know, I, it's funny because I actually just used uh, ChatGPT this morning. I had to negotiate a contract and I realized that what I was writing was just way too verbose. So I asked it, I threw it in there and I, could do, I was like, can you help me make this a little more, right. a little more succinct? And then it got very formal. I said, Hey, I, I like that, but can you make it a little less formal? And then it spat it out again. And it was probably about half the length with all of the relevant points. And I had to add in one or two things that I felt it left sure. out, but, it, but I'm always, I'm, I am constantly amazed uh, at what AI can do and the speed at which it is iterating. It's just, it's absolutely nuts. But on that note, you know, we're talking about it, especially in the realm of Hollywood, like it has changed everything and that it's ready to go. And I think that it is not fully there yet. And I think there are places it definitely is doing interesting things for sure. Um, I happen to be a fan of the tools that use AI to help the artist as opposed to replace it. Not because I feel threatened by that in any way, but because the truth is any of the tools that replace artists at this point, they're, they're not good enough to get the job done. Um, and, and I, and I think that like, you know, sure there's certain things you could do. Like I, we could talk about, um, mid journey, right? The imagery is awesome. Um, it's generating stuff that looks so real. Like it's very hard to tell the difference if, you know, between a really good well-composed photo and a well-composed mid journey shot. But I find that, you know, if I say to mid journey, like I like this, but I don't like that guy's sweater. I want him to be a red, a red, you know, V-neck like that, that can't really do yet. It can't really just keep not a mid journey, but you can use like control net or other tools. Right. But there's, but that it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not perfect. Yes. Right. And it's not art. It's not fully art directable. And at right. some point you're just saying, Hey, I'm not making decisions anymore. I'm letting the AI do it. Right. Right. And, and, you know, we're, we're seeing the stuff from like runway, which I think is a really cool company. And that I think in another year are going to be, and maybe faster. Who even knows? blowing our minds with video that is generated entirely through like you, you just type what you want and it generates video. I mean, the, the, the videos that we've seen, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, 
the ones with like the beer commercial or the pizza commercial, they're hilarious. Like they're terrible because right. like the AI doesn't really know how people eat or anything like that. And, exactly. And they're, and they're, they're great. I think the beer one, he, he was drinking through the nose or right? something. Yeah. And there's like pizza where things on Wish fire. to be honest with you, I've been to parties where that actually happened. So. <laughs> I, maybe, maybe in college, I've definitely been to a few of my... You might tell, but, uh, but long before AI, you know, but I'm looking at this stuff and what's happening is, is that like the hype machine is nuts. Everyone is like, look at how we're disrupting Hollywood. Like there's no Hollywood production that's going to use this, right? Right. Like, not, not in its current state. I, you know, people I know that, that have like companies that work with AI, they tell me that, that it's really a question of processing it at this point, processing power and money essentially, and not the capabilities of it. I'm going to just say that that's fine, but until it's actually not a question of money, where, where even the companies that make this stuff can show me something that looks legitimately usable for production, I'm going to just say it's not ready, right? I mean, right. I mean like, you know, they'll have, they'll have to find a way to make it cheaper and, and use less processing power to get to a final result. Well, and a couple of things on that about not being production ready, because we're talking about the final output, right? But I think the other thing that AI, the tools that are being offered today aren't ready for is they're not giving you production ready assets to work with, with the possible exception of Wonder Studio, right? Where right. you can use that final output if it's, if it's me, the indie guy doing this. Yeah. Or if you're in a professional workflow, you can get the mocap data, you can get the clean yeah. plate, right? They give you that. And I think that's the part that's also missing in all these tools. Yes. So the thing is, that's why I said like tools where the AI takes away the control. You know, I, I want to say mid-journey, I've seen people make a couple of really great little uh, commercials, like for like Star Wars, if Wes Anderson made it or Lord of the Rings, if you know, like right. Wes Anderson. And those have actually been really great. But a human very much interacts. Like it outputs a picture and then the human has to take that picture and do stuff with it. But, exactly. but normally you're getting a flat image that you can't really manipulate. They're just using other tools to do that. So, you know, this is where, you know, when these things help the artists do the thing they want to do, that's where it gets really interesting. And you mentioned Wonder Studios. There's also another company that I'm actually working with called Color Lab AI. And I was attracted to both of these companies because they are they are giving you a tool that you put something into the AI. The AI works and does something and gets rid of a lot of the tedious work and then it spits it out. And if you need to make changes to that and you need to art direct it, it's it's doable. Right. Where, where it's actually in a form that I don't have to struggle to do it. Like, so with Wonder Dynamics, right, with Wonder Studio, that software, which blew me away. And I think if anybody who saw that first commercial they made uh, thought they were they were full of it, like like we couldn't believe that that was right. Yes. Yeah. Right. The first time we saw it, we were like this, this is BS. This is. Yeah. And and, you know, uh, Nikola Todorovic, um, he, he told me that, you know, of course, they filmed knowing exactly what the capabilities of the software sure. are, right? But but even so, the results are are phenomenal, right? Like, it's, un, it's, it's hard to believe that you could do this. And what it does is, for those that don't know, it's software where you, you film yourself or you film an actor on camera, and then it will remove the actor from the footage. You pick the person you want to remove, and it will replace them with a CGI character. And it can have, um, it has hands and legs and feet and all this stuff. But even uh, some of the characters even have facial capture so that if you're smiling or talking, it captures that as well. And it does it really, really well. And if you don't like the final output there, or if you're just doing it for the purpose of getting motion capture, it does give you the motion capture file, which you can then bring into your 3D program. And I think it's worth noting is that like, this is a solution where the AI is uh, understanding human motion and turning that into the into the the motion capture, but it's also using one camera, which every other company that's doing this is using multiple cameras, even with the AI companies that are doing this. There's another one called Move.ai, which does some really great right. stuff, but it does require more than one camera. And um, and you know, we've been filming in a room 
for for we the other kind of volume which is like a which is a motion capture volume we've been filming with like you know six seven cameras all around the room pointing at different actors so we can see everything for a long time this is for a lot of reasons just a really big jump because single you know single camera it turns you know, it turns the stuff into motion capture it removes the actor mostly maybe it's not perfect but like that can right. be but it'll become perfect right I mean, and this and- is this is the worst it'll get that's that's why I tell people this is the worst AI is ever going to look. So whenever people complain about it, like that that oh it's not going to be a problem because because look how bad it looks. I'm like that that's not that's not going to keep you if if that's the thing you're relying on to keep you in a job, don't hold on to that because in a year from now this stuff is going to be great. Like like it's going to be working flawlessly. Well, so let's talk about that for one second because one of the things it does right it's basically rotoscoping through AI. Yeah. And now you have all these uh, models that do segmentation, like meta, right? The meta segmentation model working segment images. That's all rotoscoping that people used to do. And people still do because there's still an art to it for a little bit longer. And I always say AI won't replace anybody. It's AI with a, a human that knows AI will replace a human that doesn't. But in the case of a rotoscoper, yeah, I I think that's something that you shouldn't bet your career on. Yeah, this is where this is where we start getting into the place where yes, there will be jobs for sure that that uh, that you know that, that get replaced by an AI. But I also think of it like this, you know, that's true that will happen, and and it and it sucks, but that's the nature of the technology industry. If you're right. someone who's easily replaceable by technology, especially if your skills are like doing something not creative but very very tedious, right? Eventually, there will be technological solutions to solve these problems. I think, um, you know, as I as I as I look at this, for me as as someone who makes films and and different animations and different projects, there are things I would never have done. It's not that it's taking work away from somewhere else; it's giving me access. Like, like I'm a good animator, but character animation never great at. And and having a tool that makes that easier is not going to take away work from another character animator. I'm just making a thing I never got to make before because I didn't mm-hmm. have the the ability to do it. So. In some ways, it may take away some work, but in a lot of ways, it's opening up to people who are already creative and trying to create these things and giving them the power to do this. Right. I did an entire podcast, which will go live soon, on how all this cutting-edge technologies is democratizing filmmaking everywhere, right? Not only to everybody, uh, uh, filmmaker-wise, but also to countries that are underdeveloped that never people there couldn't afford it can now afford to do some amazing things, right? Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's really great. And I, I've always been, that's, you know, I've always been a proponent of any technology that democratizes, uh, whether it's filmmaking or motion graphics or visual effects. These have always been things I've, I've looked at. That's why my time at Red Giant was about making products that were much more affordable that would give you uh, access to results right. that were, that were things that only the pros were getting, you know, in big, big productions. Right, right. You could do drag and drop a, 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 um, a color grading and then I, I don't have to be a color grader. Right, but they didn't replace color graders because if studio is looking for a specific look, you still need that art, right? Yeah, I do think that what's interesting about it is because a lot of the color graders that I've known over the years, they would never want to say they were using some of these lower end tools, but when the projects were less, you know, like less costly, or rather the budgets were lower and the turnaround right. time was faster, they were quietly using these lower end. No, tools. but it's also it was a good place to start at, right? So mm-hmm. it it made things go quicker, and I think that's where AI is with your with with the the color grading. They would drop that color grade, and then from there they could adjust it to really what they wanted. I think AI is at that same place, right? And that's why the name of my website, Create a Spark, it's that spark. It kickstarts you, it speeds you up, but you still need that human to take it to the place that you want to go. Yeah, and one of the companies that I've been I've been uh, talking with, um, like I said, Color Labs AI, 
ColorLab AI, what they do is they they remove not the creative work from color grading, but they remove the tedious part of it. Like you do one shot and then it's like, oh, I've got to do every other shot in here and color grade this. So color matching. Right. So it, it will do a lot of that work. And so it gives you an output that then you can say, oh, this isn't perfect. I want to, and, and all the controls are still available to you to make that shot better. So it speeds it up dramatically. I mean, this has always been the thing. Like if you liked a shot, let's say from Blade Runner and you wanted your shot to look like it, right? Obviously, you have to film something that looks relatively similar right. to the shot. Like no matter how much you color grade, how much you put LUTs in there or anything, it's still got to look like the shot you're trying to emulate. But once you're at that point, like emulating it is still like a hand, like you're still like fiddling with the things. This, the AI can get you to where you want to go and then give you like, let go and say, okay, now your turn to fix this and make this even better if you want to. Maybe the skin tones are are washed out or maybe the person's too dark. So let me just select the person and make them lighter. And then it's going to know that across the entire timeline, it needs to pay attention to that particular thing as well. Yep, definitely. So it's a partnership between human and AI. But let's talk about what's happening now in Hollywood. And one day this will be over with, but, but the Screenwriters Guild, um, a strike, right? Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, and this is mainly because of AI, uh, or they don't want AI to be used as a writing or, or as a writer, not a writing tool, but as a writer by the studios, right? Yeah. Um, how is it affecting um, storytelling? Well, story I, writing that I don't, I don't know. I can't say like how it's affecting the, the story writing process right now. Obviously we're in the middle of a strike and, uh, and, and I've heard that there are some studios that are saying like, Hey, we can have the AI write the first draft of the script, you know? And then like, that's a, it's a big deal. Like, is it going to be great? I, I mean, I don't know. I, like I said, I, I was able to give, uh, I was able to give chat GPT my, like what I wrote and it made it better, but you know, I've asked it to do, uh, things like from scratch and, and it didn't necessarily do the best job. Although I, I once did ask it to write a letter to my daughter. I just wanted to see what it could do about how much I love her and how unique she is. And I explained, I, I just, just gave it concepts. I said, these are the things I love about my daughter. And I cried when I wrote the letter. It was yep. so, it was so moving. I was like, like, it was like, this is crazy. Like, like that I could be, that I, that this machine could somehow capture these, these thoughts that were a jumble in me and turn into something. But still a human has to be there. I guess they're thinking that like, maybe they'll just give it like, okay, here's the situation. Guy walks into a room and he missed you know, like misconception about something like, what can you get? And yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know how it's going to work, but I think that, uh, I think that Hollywood is very regulated in terms of, of, you know, having unions for the most part, not with visual effects and not with animation, but like, uh, you know, but, but the, um, but there, there is a union for writing. And I think that that will probably slow that down a bit. Uh, cause you can't, they're not going to be able to write without writers. Like it, it's not, not, it's not, we're not ready for that. So at the very least they're going to still have to keep them happy. I, I don't really know how it's going to go. I, I gotta be honest with you, man. When I keep thinking about what's going on with AI, like I'm surprised week to week what's going on. Like, it's amazing. Like I just all the advancements, but also the hype and the craziness that comes with that of what people mm -hmm. think is possible. Um, well, from the writing perspective, I mean, I agree that I think you, you, I say, I think you need humans, right? Um, but here's the deal too. You have some movie franchises that are just a formula. And I mean, let's be honest, could an AI write a script for, I'm not going to name any, any franchise right, right now, but, but we pretty much know what we're talking about here. Can it write some of that with some of those dumb jokes and go, okay, we got the next version of XYZ. But I mean, just putting it out there for conversation. Man, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, look, I, it, it's, I once asked uh, an AI to write a script for something that I just had like, a, it was the dumbest thing. I just wanted to see what it would do. And it did like an 
okay job. You know, okay, it was more for fun. I just wanted to see what it could do. Again, it's going to get better. It's such a hard subject to talk about because we don't know what it's going to be capable of. But I also think that that you know what's going to end. What what would end up happening with that kind of thing is that is that it would basically be studio exec notes with no no real creativity. Right. The thing about it is that writers push back sometimes when they feel like something's not not right. So if like an exec says we should do this, like the director, the people involved will sometimes push for the upholding whatever idea it is that they're trying to do. And an AI is just going to be like, sure, man, whatever you want. I'll yeah, anything you ask for. I'm, I'll be here, you know. So I don't know. Um, I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to actually speak to like saying that because I just don't know the answer to how that's going to yeah. work. I'm, yeah, I'm looking it, at me. Me, it's about the technology and not about the and not about right. the, exactly. No, I'm the same way. I just put these questions out there um, because I think they're interesting. I had a conversation with uh, Lauren Neal, which is an actress, and we we spoke about uh, digital humans and and digital uh, acting versus human acting, right? And, you know, what makes humans more special than digital avatars? Because we're going to get to a point one day where we're going to have to answer that question because you're not going to be able to tell the difference. Mm -hmm. We're almost there. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, I think about this is I have a friend who's a, who's a TV writer and also she wrote a book and she writes for the New York times. Her name is Taffy Ackner. She wrote Fleischman is in trouble. And Mm -hmm. um, I read her work and there is such a depth to it an understanding of people that at this point in time, I don't think an AI could, could understand that and, and create like what she does. She, she is a, like a, an incredibly talented writer and there are a lot of great writers out there. And you, you sometimes like you go into something thinking it's going to be one thing. And then by the time you're done reading that, the author has completely flipped everything upside down. And I don't think AI is ready for that. So is it going to replace is going to replace good writing? It's not going to replace good writing. Is it going to replace bad writing? That, you know, that's maybe more. That's the question, right? That's where I was getting at. Well, can it replace the bad writing? Who knows? Uh, and at the end of the day, we all have to remember that AI is using a model to learn, which is based on all of the human creation, mm-hmm. not on AI creation. Right, but which which creates, uh, which really kind of creates almost like a, a troublesome feedback loop if AI begins to replace artists. There stops being anything new. Because the right. AI is just using what it already knows. So to some degree, you know, I was I always look at like I always think about like Star Trek the Next Generation, how the holodeck and how they could just describe what they want to call it up. But like, you know, they, they don't give it really specific stuff. So whatever they get is what was programmed into it. And there always has to be, even in that world, there has to be some very creative artist who's coming up with the stories and giving it new, you know, new ideas so that so that there's always something fresh. Because at least for now, AI can work with what knowledge it has. It can't create new things not mostly you know right right i was just thinking that the holodeck i guess would be known today as text to experience instead of text to text or text to image right voice to but yeah but same voice in in their case voice to experience yeah it's uh, interesting um all right so hype or no hype on ai so so here's the thing i think ai is doing some really cool stuff there are like we, we talked about a couple of companies that make tools that really help the artist that's not hype Right. But there's some hype around it anyway, just because AI is being hyped so much. But there's a commercial that came out for Coca-Cola where they where they they talked about AI being the thing. Ninety nine percent of that was done with traditional visual effects, like like a couple of little bits were helped along with AI. But all everyone wants to talk about is the fact that AI did this. Right. And when I see like what's coming out of runway and it's really cool, like the steps, the the, the strides that they are making each week with what they're, what they're doing is incredible. But as of yet, there is no final result. And yet everyone's like, the, the AI is disrupting Hollywood. It's not disrupting Hollywood. It is, right. it is, it is 
uh, poised to possibly do it at some point soon, but it is, but the, most of these tools are not yet ready for prime time. Although, you know, I have a friend who's a movie producer, like, you know, produces legitimate films. And he was talking to me about wanting to produce something that's like the first AI driven film, you know, like he wants like just for the hype of it, right? Not even if it, he, he knows it may not be amazing, but he also knows that like the hype around a film that came out that way could be very interesting. And, and, you know, like that's, that's always the same thing about any technology. I think when, when, when they first started putting 3d, you know, avatar, like I gotta say two of the most beautiful movies. And honestly, two of the only, like maybe three examples of the three examples of movies that I can think of that I've seen using 3d, like really using 3d that made me feel completely immersed in that world and loved it where the story's great, eh, you know, right. Okay. They're okay. They're beautiful to look at. But and they, they were, be they were an experience. I took my daughter, an experience, the, yeah. took my daughter to see the second one recently. And as an artist, she's an artist we saw it too. It's amazing. Yeah. And she, I mean, it, from a visual perspective, yeah, it blew up her mind. Like she suddenly started like she, 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 after that, after watching it, she had all these ideas about what she wanted to draw, even if they weren't part of the film, like just her head exploded, you know, from the experience of being in it. And I think that there's some value in like showcasing new technologies in film, even if the story's not great, it pushes things very far. But it's funny because since Avatar one, the next best film I saw with, uh, with, with 3d was Avatar two. And in between it, maybe, um, maybe, uh, Pacific Rim was my other big one that I thought really looked good in 3d, but everything else I've seen has been like, eh. Eh, right, yeah. right, right. But can we agree that these technologies, Unreal and AI and everything else coming out, is is disrupting Hollywood in the sense that it's lowering the barrier to entry? It's in in a lot of ways, it is lowering the barrier to, barrier to entry. Um, and like we talked about, uh, you know, it is also setting up expectations among the the executives though about what they should like. As artists, we understand the limitations of these tools. We sit down with them. I sit down with Unreal, and I know what's possible, and what's not possible. The problem is going to be, uh, you know, and the challenge and the disruption and the pain of it is going to come from, um, you know, there's two, there's a disruption of like of being able to work faster. It's really cool. And suddenly everything's changing there. But there's also an expectation that is now being set within the the people who make decisions about money, about what we should be able to do because of what they understand. And that's not actually reflecting the reality of it. So like we talked about Unreal has its limitations, but it's fast. And so there are certain things that you will jump in, but then there'll be expect an expectation of like, we'll use Unreal for that. Like, no, you can use Unreal for that. Not if you want it to look at a certain level and I don't understand why and budgets have to be adjusted and that kind of thing. So I think they are lowering the barrier for entry. I mean, Unreal is free, right? As right. By the way, so if you want- And I think it, uh, a charge doesn't kick in until you make like a million dollars or something right. like that. Right, and if you're a big studio, but if you're a guy making a thing in your basement, you know, which a lot of people are just for like a small studio using this stuff, it's it's pretty amazing um, what you can do with just these tools that cost no money at all, you know. So yeah, yeah so it's changing it, in that way. It's definitely disrupting things. I do think that you know Blender, it, 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 you know, is a three D software. Yeah, the free and it's free, right? And it's very popular amongst people who are getting into animation. The challenge for that package has been that because it's not owned by a particular company, it's like a open source thing, community driven. Um, a lot of studios don't want to rely on it because as powerful as it is, and it is actually very powerful, there's nobody to call when things go wrong. Right. I can tell you that I've worked at companies that had big clients like NBC or CNN where there was a problem. We we sent the guy on an airplane to fly out to that location to fix that problem because they were buying 100 licenses of software. So these are like, you know, there are disruptions, but some of these disruptions can't quite disrupt because because they don't have a, a person to back, back it behind it. 
Yeah. So um, we're going to be wrapping it up pretty soon because we're pretty close to the end. But the the integration of AI, Unreal, and all these other cutting edge technologies, especially like an uh, um, live three D capturing, you know, with lidar or NERF. Yeah. Um, what's your take on that and the future of all that? You know, I think that the that using any of these tools without AI, right, has always been complicated. Right. It's it's even when they're even when they're easy by the standard of someone professional, like sitting down with it and having the time to learn it and, and, and really having a deep understanding for me, moving over to Unreal was not too challenging. I had a great course by Jonathan Winbush that I took, took me about it was a six hour mm-hmm. course. And my whole of my existence of like 3D up until now, the 20 years I've had it easily transferred over. Right. But for someone coming in new, like jumping into Unreal can be very hard and very challenging. And I think that or, or any of these other tools, AI can bridge the gap between what I want to make and what I don't know how to make. And I think that's where we're really going to see real disruption where someone can say, hey, I want to build a 3D scene. I want you to do this, make this thing for me, add trees, do all this stuff. And then within Unreal, it'll build all this stuff. And then you can from there, like start animating, maybe, you know, even say, I want the camera to move from here to here, and then it will do the rest of it. But you also can take control of it and jump into the tools and manually adjust as you learn more and know how to do things. So I think I think AI is going to drive so much creativity from people who have such a, a desire and even like a creative spark within themselves, no pun intended, right? But <laughs> don't have the knowledge and it's going to skip a lot of the technical need to know, which means to some degree, maybe their work might and the final work might not be as amazing as someone super knowledgeable who understands lighting and camera and has spent years working both in physical sets and on 3D and designing and lighting. But, you know, I think about this, I have a friend who's, um, who's a photographer and he wants to move into 3D and it's a big, like he's very traditional photography. There's a big barrier for him, but he knows all the things he needs to do. He just doesn't know how. So if he could say to the program, set up a backlight over here, set up a, you know, like right. a kind of camera, this kind of light, and suddenly the computer could do it for him without him having to know how, he could get a good result, I think. Well, and which means that you can then focus from the filmmaking side on the story and not so much on the implementation and all the practical yeah. stuff you need to know to implement that story, right? So, Story and I think design and 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 also the other thing is part of what keeps the budgets as high as they are is all of the people that have to do the tedious work. And if you remove a lot of that tedious work, then people can be you can have a lot more people doing a lot more creative work. And I think we're going to tell both smaller stories that smaller stories where uh, someone independent can use these technologies, and I think bigger ones that that were just not feasible technologically because they just cost too much. But now right. now you know, we're getting rid of a lot of that cost by getting rid of a lot of the stuff that doesn't need to cost anything. Yeah, totally. Aaron, it's been a pleasure. Uh, final question I want to know, where do you see yourself in five years? Because you're always evolving just like AI. Yeah, I, I, man, I, I hope to be working right now. Like this is my, I'm, I'm working, I really dived into com- working with companies that work with Unreal and AI. Um, I'm, I, I love designing software, so I'd love to be doing some of that, but um, I'm not sure yet what is needed in our space to give people, but I'm keeping my eyes on that. So Exciting I, I, stuff, right? Yeah. It's exciting it, times to live through. It is. Especially if you're into technology, like you. yeah, I I feel for my I feel for my kids though. I talk a little too much about this stuff, you know, like they they uh, they 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 learn about it whether they want to or not. That's the but thing. you know what? That's actually a good thing. I my kids have been involved in technology since they were babies. I put them through that, and that's the best thing because the future is all about technology anywhere. Yeah. And it to me, knowing technology is like knowing how to write. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, you know, so if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way? Well, I'm on Twitter as ABAO Productions, and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm that's that's the best. I'm, I'm that's where I am all the time, hanging out and talking to people and answering questions and asking questions, yeah. and learning. 
you're real good at that. So, Aron, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me. And thanks to the rest of you uh, for uh, watching another episode of Filmmakers on Cutting Edge. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. It was a wonderful conversation. I've been wanting to get him on here for a while, and I'm glad he he uh, decided to join. So remember to check out uh, creativespark.ai for more podcast episodes and tutorials. Focus on cutting-edge technologies, workflows, and tools to help you be more creative and productive. Also, if you're watching this on YouTube, remember to subscribe to our channel and click that bell icon to get notified when new episode is out. And if you enjoy this episode, click the like button. Anyway, thank you so much for being here. I hope you enjoy it. And if you need to get a hold of me, Marcelo at creativespark.ai. See you on the next one. Cheers.